Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the webinar, Is the Door Closing? Latin American and Caribbean Responses to Venezuelan Migration. I'm Andrew Seeley. I'm the President of the Migration Policy Institute. I'm here with my colleague, Jessica Bolter, um, and with Luisa Feline Freire, with Feline, a good colleague from University of the Pacific, a prolific author and assistant professor at, uh, of social and political science, and Juliana Miranda Rocha, the coordinator of the, of the Jesuit Service for Mi Migrants and Refugees in Brazil, who knows deeply about what's going on in, in Brazil and around the hemisphere. And we're looking forward to discussing with you over the next hour um, what is happening around Latin America and the Caribbean in terms of the response both to the Venezuelan and the smaller but very important Nicaraguan migration, which is primarily to Costa Rica. Um, some housekeeping before we dive into the subject. If you have any problems connecting to this event, feel free to email us at to events at migrationpolicy.org or call us at 202-266-1926. We will have a question and answer period at the end of this webinar. Um, you will be able to type your questions. There isn't a live question feature, but you can type your questions into the screen at the top right uh, corner, um, and it will appear. We'll be able to answer them when we get to the Q&A period. You can do that at any time. You don't have to wait till the end. Um, you can also send questions to events at migrationpolicy.org. Um, again, I guess I've introduced you already. So Jessica Bolter, Associate Policy Analyst here, co-author of, of the report uh, that we're going to present called Uneven Welcome. Um, and then Feline Freire uh, from the University of Pacific and Juliana Miranda Rocha from the Servicio Jesuita a Migrantes e Refugiados. And I'm sure I massacred that, Juliana, because my Portuguese is terrible. But um, we will uh, talk about the report briefly, Jessica and I, and then we have the pleasure of turning over to Feline and to Juliana to uh, to speak more broadly about what's going on in the hemisphere. Um, let me start by saying that this is Latin America's migration moment. There has, of course, always been mobility in the hemisphere, but we tended to think of Latin America as, as a region, Latin America and the Caribbean, as a region where people were leaving and headed to North America and Europe. Um, that is certainly not the case anymore. I mean, there are some people leaving, headed to those directions, but there's an enormous amount of mobility within the hemisphere at this moment. Um, some of that is driven by the Venezuelan-Nicaraguan crises, but also the Northern Triangle and migration um, to Mexico and Central America, Haitian and Cuban migration, extra-hemispheric migration to Latin America and the Caribbean, and large flow of people returning, actually, from uh, who have left uh, from their countries, returning home with, with spouses and children born abroad. Um, we have two resources we're launching today. One is a portal on Latin American and Caribbean migration, um, which tries to, to present documents that are particularly useful. These are studies, data, analyses of what is going on in terms of mobility within the hemisphere. And secondly, this report that we are going to talk about, which is the subject of today's webinar, which specifically looks at the response in the region to the Venezuelan and Nicaraguan flows. The, the Venezuelan flow, of course, is the larger one. There are about 4 million Venezuelans who have stayed in Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, it's a little over 80% of those who have left Venezuela. Um, Nicaraguan flow is much smaller. It's 80 to 100,000, perhaps more, um, primarily to Costa Rica. A few people have gone to Panama, a few have headed to Mexico and the United States, but overwhelmingly to Costa Rica. Um, we will obviously talk more about the Venezuelan flow because it affects all the countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, bar none. Um, but we also try and talk a bit about the Nicaraguan flow to, to Costa Rica. We did both because they, they have similar dynamics. These are flows that have been generated by a mixture of political conflict, economic implosion, um, and in the case of Venezuela, a real, a real collapse of functions of the state. 
Um, the Venezuelan flow, of course, is the second largest, largest displacement flow in the world right now after the Syrian crisis. has a different origin, but, but is very almost as large in terms of numbers, not quite yet. Um, what has happened both in the case of the response to the Venezuelan and the Nicaraguan flows is the response has been primarily from national governments and not from international organizations, which is not to say that international organizations aren't important. I will come back to that in a minute. They've played a very important supporting role, but this is not what we've seen elsewhere in the world where international organizations step in and become responsible, designate people's refugees, become responsible for them, you know, and try and maintain them during a period of time um, and resettle them elsewhere. These have been responses that have been primarily state-driven, which tells you something about the resilience of the capacity of states in Latin America and the Caribbean to respond to such a large, to such large migration flows in a short period of time. Um, the receiving countries have mostly viewed Venezuelans and Nicaraguans as well as migrants rather than as refugees. So they've initially been, been treated as, as migrants. And most countries have tried to move them into uh, the labor market into local communities. Um, many have granted some sort of temporary legal status. A few countries have actually granted uh, work authorization, have, have granted uh, some longer term visa status or permanent status as well, but most have granted some sort of temporary status. A few have used the asylum system as a way of at least granting temporary status to people while their applications are pending. And in most countries in the hemisphere, um, those migrants who've arrived from Nicaragua and Venezuela have had access to education and emer at least emergency health care, um, regardless of their immigration status. And that is actually worth noting. I mean, that is actually a fairly significant um, uh, fact in terms of how people have been in able to integrate into local communities. Governments have largely wanted to facilitate this access. As we'll see shortly, and Jessica will talk about, it doesn't always work in practice as well as it does in theory, but the theory matters and the fact that governments have been committed to this matters. The one exception, of course, Trinidad and Tobago does not provide education to those who are in temporary status or are in a regular status, but all other countries do. It's worth saying that, that the welcome is wearing thin in some places. We ask the question here, you know, is, is this a, you know, that are, are Latin American and Caribbean countries at a turning point? We don't think they are, but we do recognize that this is a point where as the flows continue, particularly from Venezuela, um, there is a, a sense of concern in some countries, and we've seen governments, as Jessica will talk about, um, erect entry requirements in some cases that make it harder for Venezuelans to come in. That is less true of Nicaraguans in Costa Rica. Um, and with that, let me turn it to Jessica Bolter. Great. Thank you, Andrew. Andrew. So in just as population uh, host populations are kind of starting to get a little bit tired of this migration, countries are also realizing that this is, this Venezuelan migrant population is more likely to be permanent than temporary. Um, so with this in mind, host governments are going to have to address the gap between migrants' ability to access education, healthcare, the formal labor market according to law, and their ability to do so in practice. So I want to highlight some of the primary challenges as well as innovations that came to light in our research in these spheres. Uh, starting with education, all countries that we looked at, and we looked at 11 case study countries for our report, um, so 10 of the 11, uh, the exception being Trinidad and Tobago again, guarantee education for all regardless of immigration status, whether that's through their constitution, through law, um, through, in some cases, an administrative decree. 
Um, but even in countries that guarantee this access, which is extremely important, there are some obstacles to accessing it in practice. Um, so these obstacles can be something as bureaucratic as what documents are required to enroll in school. You know, most countries' school enrollment systems were not designed with a situation of mass forced migration in mind. So requiring a transcript of past studies might be something that was achievable for uh, the few immigrants showing up in the past, uh, but it's different for uh, many Venezuelans who are fleeing essentially a failed state. Um, some countries have been able to innovate and make their documentary requirements more flexible. In Peru and Costa Rica, parents can sign a sworn declaration of their child's name and age if the child lacks an identification document in order to enroll. Um, but, the, but beyond these um, documentary requirements, and even if countries have made the requirements more flexible, uh, it can be the case that a lack of information, lack of dissemination of information uh, to people at um, kind of the ground level of government can also act as a barrier. So even though Peru has instituted uh, this change to make enrollment easier for kids without identification, um, some school officials on the ground uh, may not be aware of all the changes that are going on at the national level and may still be doing enrollment as they've always done it and requiring um, the same documents. There's also uh, the issue of a lack of information on, part, on the part of the migrants. Um, so they might think, for example, that they need certain documents to enroll when they actually don't. Um, a survey done in the border, in two border, border regions of Colombia found that 44% of Venezuelan migrants who, uh, whose kids weren't enrolled in school thought that they needed certain documents to enroll their kids in school. But Colombia has eliminated these documentary requirements. Um, moving on to healthcare, as Andrew mentioned, emergency healthcare is guaranteed in all these countries, but trying to access other forms of healthcare can be difficult for migrants, even those with regular status. Um, this can be the case in countries with both universal health systems as well as public-private ins insurance systems. Um, in universal systems, uh, even the degree to which the universality of this of the system that's codified in law is actually implemented on the ground can vary due to resource constraints. Um, and this is something that uh, the native-born population host communities are also struggling with. So this is more of a systemic issue that Venezuelan migrants are um, kind of coming into. In public-private systems, resources can also be an issue, particularly in the public system, though countries have tried to take steps to ensure that the most vulnerable migrants are cared for. Um, so Colombia has made sure that those Venezuelans with the special stay permit, which is the permit specific to Venezuelans there, are eligible for the public insurance system, though there can still be some difficulties accessing the subsidized portion of that system. However, Colombia also has an extensive public health system and has recently announced that it will prioritize expanding insurance coverage to migrants and others who are outside the system. And then finally, um, in, in this part to talk about labor market access, migrants, Venezuelan migrants tend to be employed at a high rate actually, but are often in informal jobs. 
So 92% of Venezuelan migrants were employed in Peru, 80% in Colombia. Um, it's important to note that migration can be beneficial to economies on the whole, but we also do have to keep in mind the short-term costs. So while Venezuelan migration has contributed to GDP growth in Peru and the Chilean Central Bank has lowered interest rates in that country due uh, to Venezuelan migration expanding the labor force. There's also been a study in Colombia that found that increased migration led to decreased salaries in the informal sector. So we can't neglect the short-term concerns of host populations, especially in countries where so much of the workforce is in the informal sector. Um, and because Venezuelans tend to be more highly educated than native-born populations, they maybe would not have to work in the informal sector if some other pathways were made available to them. But there are also significant barriers to credential recognition when those credentials have been obtained abroad. Um, this can be costly and involve long wait times, um, which stalls the integration of these migrants. Some countries, uh, like Uruguay, have actually found ways to mitigate these challenges. Uruguay committed to decentralizing its credit recognition system, um, but of course, Uruguay is dealing with a much smaller number of Venezuelan migrants than some of these other countries. Um, so it might, it might be easy enough to kind of think up ways to extend these services to migrants, but solutions um, do have to walk a careful line as there may be elements of a backlash developing to continuing migration, as Andrew mentioned at the top. Um, there's real political pressure on governments. About 70% uh, of people in Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru who were surveyed by Oxfam uh, in the first half of 2019 stated that they favored stricter border enforcement. 80% uh, of Colombians and 70% of Ecuadorans and Peruvians surveyed believed that migrants were causing social services to collapse. Now, it really depends kind of how national governments respond to these concerns, and some have chosen to uh, kind of feed into this backlash more than others. And we saw this in the imposition of new entry requirements for specifically for Venezuelan migrants in the past year, especially. Um, so prior to uh, the mass Venezuelan migration, regional mobility agreements had really established some degree of freedom of movement in Latin America. In fact, 10 out of the 11 case study countries that we looked at allowed Venezuelans to enter without a visa as of the end of 2015. And by the end of 2019, four additional countries had added entry requirements. Um, this was brought into particularly stark relief when um, three countries acted in quick succession in summer of 2019 uh, to impose visa requirements, those being Peru, Chile, then Ecuador, um, along kind of the main, the, one of the main migration routes for Venezuelan migrants. On the other hand, we can also see that some governments really are trying to walk this line between attending to migrants and attending to the concerns of the host community. So at the same time as Ecuador announced its visa requirement, it also announced a mass regularization program for many Venezuelans living in that country. Governments' responses can't necessarily be neatly categorized. Uh, and as I've mentioned, there have been some real innovations in uh, helping Venezuelan migrants to access spheres like education, healthcare, and the labor market. 
Um, but there, as, as this, um, as we face elements of a backlash, there's clearly a line that uh, needs to be walked to ensure that governments do have the space to continue welcoming Venezuelan migrants and continuing pro continue providing these innovative solutions. Um, and I'll just turn it back to Andrew for a final word, if you have. Great. Um, I, I would just say very quickly, and then I'll turn it to our, our other two speakers. I mean, this, as Jessica said, I mean, there's some real long-term benefits that are likely to accrue to countries, recipient countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, but there are also some very real adjustment cost up front. And this is particularly true in, in you know, the informal labor market. It's certainly true in, in uh, much more clearly in education and healthcare and sometimes housing, um, where there were already problems, where there was already a lack of, of provision of services, you know, in terms of schools and hospitals in many countries, um, and, you know, high costs of housing in a lot of major cities. And these have been accentuated further by the arrival of new people. So the question becomes, how do you both look at the long term and, and look at this as a win-win for the countries and the migrants and at the same time do what needs to be done to make sure you actually get to that win-win because you have to deal with the, the, the real upfront costs. And, and this country governments have done the best they can with the help of civil society and civil society has been absolutely critical in the response here um, in every country. Um, but there's also a need to be a, a heavy hand of the international community supporting um, both civil society groups and governments uh, to deal with some of these adjustment costs. And these are not the traditional tools of aid. These are really the tools of how to allow receiving communities to be able to develop the capacity to grow what they offer to receive a larger number of people. So with that, let me turn it over to Luciana. Um, and let me turn, no, no, I'm sorry. Yes, wrong, wrong day here. Let me turn it over to, uh, to Feline, our good friend from Universidad del Pacifico. Feline. Wonderful. Um, Andrew and Jessica, thank you so much for the introduction and summary of this um, really in-depth, uh, so well-researched report. Um, I'll try not to be too repetitive. Um, what I want to do in my short intervention um, are three things. Um, I want to juxtapose different trends within the region uh, from the beginning of the Venezuelan displacement crisis, then give a couple or maybe a main explanation that I see that uh, helps us understand these differences in policy development, and then end my intervention by restating once more why legal status matters, um, both legal access and legal residence in the country, and why it's so important to support countries in the region to continue or to come back to policies of, of granting both legal access and legal residence. Um, so what we saw a little bit from the beginning of the crisis um, were different groups of country uh, choosing different routes in their policy reaction to Venezuelan displacement. Um, so in the, in the first reaction, there were two main groups. One actually applied existing legislation um, and here it's important to point out Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil, who already in 2016, with the, with the arrival of the, of the first uh, Venezuelan migrants, decided to unilaterally, 2016-17, uh, apply the Mercosur residence agreement. So what they said was that um, the, the temporary dis, uh, dismissal of uh, Venezuela from the Mercosur, from the regional um, um, Mercosur um, agreement, should not, uh, was, was really um, a sanction against the government and should not negatively affect its citizens. Uh, and that's why these 10 
countries said, okay, we, we decided to unilaterally keep extending uh, the Mercosur um, residence agreement and, and residence visa, which basically allowed Venezuelans to reside in the countries for two years um, with the possibility of then accessing more sustainable visa categories as long as they could um, prove uh, sources of income, um, work, etc. Along the way, those countries have also decided to to grant uh, Venezuelans um, some, um, basically to soften some of the requirements that uh, are usually attached to the Mercosur uh, visa. Uh, Ecuador did something similar in the beginning by extending um, the uh, UNASUR um, residence agreement and visa to Venezuelans. There were some issues there in practice because it's a very expensive visa, so it, it costs 2400 Dollars, which for most Venezuelan migrants already in 2016-17 basically was an, it, impossible to pay, right? If we're talking about a country um, with, with a collapsed economy where the minimum wage has ranged the last year, years between 5 and 20 US dollars a month. Mexico, interestingly enough, uh, was the first country in the region to apply the Cartagena refugee definition to um, to Venezuelan displaced people. And this is interesting, Andrew, you, you mentioned in the beginning that most countries chose to define, uh, both in the discourses and in the policy reactions, Venezuelan um, citizens as migrants. Legally, they should actually be recognized as refugees. Um, and why is that? Why is that? On, on the one hand side, of course, some of them are politically persecuted, and the UN definition of refugee of 1951 clearly applies to them. But very, very importantly, um, almost all countries in Latin America have incorporated into their national legislation not only the definition of the United Nations of 51, but the refugee definition of Cartagena, which is much more expansive and also applies to people who have fled circumstances in their home countries, which include both internal conflict and external aggression, but also massive um, violations of, of human rights, um, violence, and importantly, any circumstances that have seriously disturbed public order. Now, in all their, um, in all their uh, declarations, state declarations, also in the reports of the Organization of American States, these these uh, circumstances clearly apply to Venezuela, and from a legal perspective, there's not much doubt that the refugee definition of Cartagena applies to Venezuelans. But in the first instance, it was really only Mexico who applied this definition to Venezuelans. The other group in the first instance were countries that were the main countries of reception, such as Colombia, uh, Peru, and, and Chile, who developed new special visa categories that you so well um, um, summarized in, in, in your presentation, Jessica and Andrew, such as the PEP in Colombia, the PTP in Peru, um, and, and, and similar special visas only for Venezuelan population in Chile. Um, Jessica already mentioned some of the problems with those special visas. Although they were creative and fairly generous in international comparison, especially if we compare these reactions, for example, to reactions of European countries in the context of the Syrian displacement crisis, um, it's really important to see that most, most of the time they were implemented retroactively. 
So they only recognized uh, Venezuelan migrants already in the country, so they were not really, they were not really sustainable. Um, they also overburdened, in some cases, the migration system of countries that were really not used to such big inflows. Uh, Interpol offices in, in Peru, for example, broke down because they could, not ex, um, ex, ex, um, they could not issue the amount of clean criminal records that were needed for these special visas. And another very important point that was made by Jessica, the lack of information. So there were so many different um, visas and um, and basically, yeah, uh, policies that, was, that the information did not necessarily reach both migrants and officials. Uh, and that in the, in the um, extension and, and application of these policies has been, has been a huge problem. Um, what we see now in the, in, the, in the second phase, now in the phase that we are, where we're asking ourselves, um, are, the, are the doors closing, um, is, is um, a split in this group of the countries who came up with the special visas. And here I would like to, to juxtapose, on the one hand side, Colombia and, and Brazil as well, and I think Juliana will tell us more about Brazil's recent approach. But the Colombia as, a, as the main recipient in the region that really has received the biggest flow, but that has uh, kept um, ex expanding or, or issuing, issuing new um, temporary visas, work visas for Venezuelan migrants, whereas Ecuador and Peru as the, uh, as the third and, and second most important receiving countries in the region have become much more restrictive in their reactions. Um, here, I do not want to scare you with the, with the next slide, but I just wanted to show you this. Um, the example is Peru, to, to, to show you how many different policy decisions have been made in Peru, and this is um, only in the last two years in Peru, um, where basically here the, the PTP was translated as TPP, but basically the, this was already the fourth policy presidential decree that issued the, the temporary visa for Venezuelans, it was originally issued for all of 2019. Then the decision was made to take that back. Um, in 2019, passport requirements were introduced for the first time in Peru, uh, mirrored by Ecuador. So Ecuador and Peru, they would see this element of, of policy diffusion between neighboring countries decided almost at the same time to ask for passports. In both countries, um, the judiciary questioned that decision. Because in practice, for Venezuelans, it, it is impossible to, um, to get passports right now because of the, the, the collapsing, uh, the, the collapse of, of public policy in many areas, uh, but also because of corruption and the price of um, passports. I think the last time I looked it up, the, the official price were 200 US dollars. But in practice, we've heard from our interviewees that in order to get a passport in a reasonable amount of time, they, they would have had to pay 800,000 up to very thousands of dollars. So absolutely impossible and a requirement that doesn't seem outrageous, but in practice, in this context of humanitarian um, Venezuelan displacement, is really impossible for, for most to, to, to achieve. Um, so what we, what we see then and here, um, if you look at tourist visas or humanitarian visa requirements, in June of 2019, Peru declared that it would uh, implement a humanitarian visa. And I would only say um, 
This is a so-called humanitarian visa because it actually does not grant protection or expand um, protection, but in practice has meant the implementation of a socioeconomic filter for Venezuelans. Um, again, it, it requires passport and it also requires um, a clean criminal record issued in Venezuela, which is linked to similar costs as a passport uh, due to corruption uh, in Venezuela. In practice, what is happening also is that the, the, the system of ex extending or giving uh, appointments for the humanitarian visa has collapsed. Um, and again, a couple of weeks ago, the last time I asked journalists and, um, and colleagues in Venezuela, they were giving the appointments for the humanitarian visa for the end of 2021. So if we're thinking about protecting a population um, that is you know, whose, whose human rights are violated in their country of origin, but we only give them the opportunity to ask for, for a visa, to get a visa appointment in two years down the line, one year, two years down the line, that's a huge problem. Um, and we really see a very similar policies here in Ecuador and uh, Peru, both regarding passport requirements and this introduction of new humanitarian um, visas, which were also um, introduced in, in, in Ecuador in August of last year. Um, now, let me briefly move to the question how we can explain this difference. Yeah, why do we have um, the, the continuity in Colombia of relatively generous policies, not perfect because again, um, these are also um, ad hoc visas, visa programs that retroactively regularize or only regularize or give legal status um, with, with certain time limits, but certainly the political will to grant both legal access and legal residence to Venezuelans in the country and the increasingly restrictive shift in Peru and Ecuador. Um, and here what, what we see is that in Ecuador and Peru, there really has been a reorientation of policy making from foreign policy, yeah, and that's something Andrew, you mentioned at the beginning of your presentation as well, that, as well, that in the beginning, this was really also about making, making a statement um, in the context of international relations um, against the, the Venezuelan government by uh, protecting, by receiving their displaced population towards domestic policy. And here in Ecuador and Peru, we really see a, a very serious increase of xenophobia. Um, I would say already in the last year, um, maybe year and a half, but increasingly so in the last six months, six to nine months. Um, and here we see what we've seen in Europe, we've seen in North America before, uh, extreme examples of criminalization of Venezuelan migrants and securitization of immigration policy. Um, I always share this anecdote because I think it, it, it really shows the problem. At an event with 25 um, journalists of different regions in Peru, I asked them about their perception of the percentage of, um, of police reports that had been filed against Venezuelans and against Peruvians in the last three years. Three knew and the others gave me estimates between 20, 50, 80% uh, of all files claimed, uh, um, of all um, cases uh, reported against Venezuelans, which is absolutely absurd. The real number are 0.5% uh, of, um, 
of all these um, reported crimes. So um, media plays a huge role here, a very irresponsible role of repeating and repeatedly reporting on the same crimes committed by Venezuelan um, nationals. Um, and this has even led to the announcement, it has not been put in practice because it's unconstitutional um, and, and illegal, but the announcement by the, by the Minister of the Interior in Peru to implement a police brigade against crimes committed by foreigners. So this is where we are right now when it comes to criminalization, securitization, and, and uh, I would really say populist misuse of the situation by certain politicians. Now, it's interesting that this hasn't happened to the same extent in Colombia because Colombia has received the highest number um, of, of Venezuelans and it's the neighboring country, right? But what, what, what I see here is that precisely the geopolitical position um, has forced Colombia to be more pragmatic. So um, there is racism and there is xenophobia and there are similar concerns within the Colombian population but being the border, the bordering country, Colombia cannot pretend to control um, its border. Um, something that Ecuadorian and, and Peruvian politicians do, although they don't control their border either. And what we really see in practice is an increase of irregular migration to these countries. Um, a second point to, about Colombia is that it has really been more successful in, in, in attracting international funds to deal with the Venezuelan immigration and to see this as an opportunity to invest in public policy, not only for Venezuelans, uh, but also for Colombian nationals. Colombia has received 45% of more or less, we, we did the calculation, of international cooperation to be invested in healthcare, in education, etc. And I'm running out of time, so just very, very briefly to restate why legal status really matters. On the one hand side, from a rights perspective, countries in the region have the obligation to recognize Venezuelans as refugees, and if not as refugees, to extend humanitarian visas to them and to really think about sustainable legal access and residence in their countries. And on the other hand side, they should also do this out of self-interest. Um, they, there's a lot of talk about maintaining control. No country um, controls its borders, and certainly countries in Latin America don't report the, um, control their borders. So it's really important to offer legal means of entry and residence to know who's in the country and how many are in the country. Jessica mentioned the economic potential of Venezuelans. Although we have the problem of irregular labor markets, they can only fulfill this potential if they have legal status and can access the legal, um, the legal or regular uh, labor market and contribute through paying taxes. It's also in the self-interest of states that Venezuelans remain healthy and Venezuelan children remain in school. And lastly, there's a lot of research done that um, giving legal status also uh, helps the socio-political socio integration and, and civic integration of migrants and this is really important because in most countries, the children, and many children who are born to Venezuelan parents, are not migrants anymore. They're already, um, they're, they're already born as citizens of the receiving countries. So I know I, I, I took too much, too much advantage of, of your time and I spoke too long, so I'll end here. Thank you very much and I look forward to the discussion.
Thank you, Felina. That was great. Um, sort of force. Juliana, how does this look from Brazil, and how does this look in your experience in, in Latin America and the Caribbean more broadly? So thank you very much for inviting me for this webinar, uh, Andrew, and thanks so much for uh, also for the whole uh, team of MPI. So um, what I want to, to talk to you this afternoon is about the legal statuses of Venezuelans in Brazil. So uh, it's quite, uh, I think that uh, all of us have, have uh, uh, similar uh, stuff to discuss this afternoon. Uh, for example, what I have to bring to you is that the law uh, in Brazil uh, has uh, been eliminating some of uh, documents required for uh, Venezuelans to apply for legal status here in the country. So uh, basically here in Brazil, Venezuelans has uh, two main paths to uh, look for uh, their uh, migratory regularization. So the first path would be um, to apply for a temporary residence. Uh, uh, actually, Brazilian government uh, enact a normative resolution, uh, number 126 in 2017. Uh, this resolution states a temporary residence for nationals from bordering countries, including both Guyana, Suriname, and Venezuela, who was suspended from Mercosur in 2016 uh, because she didn't uh, comply with the rules of the bloc, of course. And this temporary residence uh, was for uh, less for two years, and it was a land-based based entry, uh, which means that people who arrive uh, here in Brazil by plane, for example, couldn't apply for this uh, residence. Only people who cross the border by car, by bus, uh, on foot, would be able to apply for this kind of uh, temporary residence. And also, uh, this kind of temporary residence on that time in 2017, um, uh, to apply for it, the Venezuelans needed also to uh, have a birth certificate or a wedding certificate or a consular certificate. And it was a very difficult, uh, already on that time, very difficult document to uh, to 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 get in their consulate or embassy, for for example. Uh, also, they would have to they would have to they would need a clean criminal record certificate issued by Brazil, and a self declaration that uh, that uh, the person has not been criminally prosecuted in, in their country of origin. Uh, also, uh, on that time, uh, to apply for this kind of residence, the Venezuelans would have to pay a fee, uh, which was at the time, I think, around $100 American dollars for the regularization. So, one year after, the Brazilian government uh, enacted another uh, law on interministerial ordinance, number nine, and uh, in these ordinance, they said that uh, Venezuelans could have an ID or a passport and not uh, demanding uh, to have a valid passport. So one year after, they just 
mitigate this requirement already. And also, the, the Venezuelan could have only a simple copy of these documents, ID or passport, with no, no need to have the originals with him or her. Um, about the, the consular or birth or wedding certification, uh, they still ask for this document, but uh, they don't, uh, uh, the, these documents did, didn't need to be validated, no need to have uh, uh, the Hague apostille under the, the Convention of 61, for example. So it was easier for them to, to have this kind of documents. Uh, also, another thing that was very innovative in this uh, law of 2018 uh, was the possibility uh, that a Venezuelan had to declare economic vulner uh, vulnerability uh, to have the fees exemption. So uh, they could, they, they need only to fill out a declaration stating that he was not able to pay the fees and he would be able to access this kind of residence for free. Uh, also, uh, this uh, law uh, started to, uh, to uh, give more protection to indigenous people, especially the Warals, which are the population who is in the north part of the country. Um, for the indigenous people, uh, the law states that if the, the, applicant, the applicant is indigenous and doesn't have the documents, it will be accepted only an ID document accompanied by a self-declaration of descent. So uh, he, he, it will be uh, much more easier for indigenous people to uh, be uh, regular in Brazil with this new uh, law of 2018. Uh, also, uh, things got better in the middle of uh, 2018 in August with another law, uh, Interministerial Ordinance Number 15, which, uh, which, which states that if uh, the federal policy, which is the responsible to analyze or, or to receive the, the applications for this kind of temporary residence, if uh, they verify that the immigrant is in a vulnerable situation and unable to, to present the, the birth or wedding or consular certificate, such documentation may be waived, uh, in which case the self-declaration of descent will be accepted because basically this kind of certificates were uh, demanded to verify uh, uh, the, the correct name of uh, the father and the mother of the migrant, so they could track, for example, uh, better the, the migrant criminal records, for instance. Um, so also uh, about the, the, this kind of residence, you can see that uh, between 2017 and the uh, August of 2018, uh, also the new laws stated that it was uh, possible to change from temporary residence after two years to permanent residence. Uh, and you only need for that to prove that you have 
means, to, uh, means of survival here in Brazil. Uh, so also, uh, in, it's important to mention that uh, already in August 2017, uh, Brazilian's uh, government uh, enacted another joint resolution number one uh, to try to regulate the questions uh, and the problems uh, of unaccompanied minors. Uh, so uh, what this resolution states is that no compulsory uh, expulsion of withdrawal measure would be uh, applicable uh, to the minors unaccompanied or separate from their families. Uh, and the, uh, the Brazilian government couldn't, uh, uh, couldn't send them to a place where their life, freedom, or fundamental rights were at risk. Uh, reminding here the, the principle of non-refoulement. Unaccompanied minors will not be criminalized also due to their migratory conditions. And basically what, uh, in, in, in very pragmatic way, what this uh, legislation, what this law uh, states was that uh, some, some procedures uh, to control and to guarantee rights uh, for these children uh, once they enter in Brazil. So uh, the, the law, the, the resolution says that uh, in, the, in a port of entry, um, an, of, uh, an, of, uh, an officer from federal police will carry out a biometric identification of this minor in order to locate legal guardians and also to, to search in international databases uh, the, the, the track history of this manner. Um, proceed with migratory registration in the entry, of, of course, and notify the federal public defender. The federal public defender became a very important figure, actor, um, in, uh, uh, when we talk about minors uh, in Brazil. And this is specifically important because uh, since the middle 2019, end of 2019, uh, the number of children of minors unaccompanied or separate from their families has increased in Brazil. Um, it's, it's a very uh, delicate and, and, and sensible issue. So uh, the federal defender will conduct, uh, according by this resolution, uh, an assessment, which the law says it's a protection analysis form. Uh, and then after this, this, this analysis, uh, the defender will, will decide for a possibility, uh, always, always considering the best interest of the child, but will decide if it's uh, suitable to apply a protection measure uh, by family reunion or protection because uh, the, the minor uh, was identified as human, um, as, as a victim of human traffic, or another measure as uh, migratory regularization, like um, applying uh, for uh, asylum or uh, applying for a procedure to recognize the minor as uh, a stateless person, etc. So, um, and also 
in May, in May 2019, uh, the other uh, new that the legislation, the Brazilian le legislation bring was that uh, every child uh, uh, up to nine years old uh, could enter in Brazil with no ID or no passport as long as they have uh, its original birth certificate. So uh, it was easier because in Venezuela they have a huge problem that they do not uh, issue uh, ID cards from, from, for men, uh, for, for children uh, under nine years old. And especially now, I think it's difficult to get any kind of documents in Venezuela. Uh, people are not, they, they, they can't have it. It's, uh, you have to bribe and you have a lot of money to, um, to uh, uh, access this. So I will uh, be very, try to be very quickly right now. So uh, as a law application, we have kind of from the uh, 253,000 Venezuelans in Brazil, we have about 123 who applied for uh, temporary residence, and we have 129 who applied for asylum. So kind of 50-50%. And asylum application in Brazil is kind of a simple uh, procedure. So you, you do this procedure via uh, Cisconari, which, which is, uh, which is a uh, web platform. Uh, the, the asylum seekers are able to do their application in English, French, Spanish, or Portuguese. Um, all the notifications are made by uh, email. Um, the, the asylum seekers are, are, will receive immediately an ID card, uh, and with this ID card, immediately after uh, uh, the application, the asylum application, and this ID card will be able to let them to work formally, uh, legally in Brazil, and they will also have uh, uh, rights to access uh, health and public health and, and medication system. Um, and then uh, some, uh, I think that's not, that's minor, that it has a minor importance to the last slide. So what I want to, to, to conclude with all of this is that uh, as it was said by Jessica and, and Celine and also Andrew is that uh, we see that many countries in Latin America are trying to mitigate and facilitate the, the access uh, to regularization for the Venezuelans. We are kind of dealing better with this uh, Venezuelan influx than, for example, Europe, uh, because if we, if we, we could do a, a, a comparison, uh, the, the Mediterranean crisis was like uh, one-third uh, of, of the number of Venezuelans that we are, we Latin America are receiving right now, and we are uh, countries in development, so we would have less um, less resources to deal with this crisis. So, um, I would like to thank you very much for your attention. I, w I won't take uh, longer, and I will be available to answer you uh, any questions that you have, and I, and I might. Uh, uh, be uh, capable to answer. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Juliana. Okay, we have eight minutes left, and we have a lot of questions. 
And so if that's okay, I will read off the questions and we'll go back to the panelists to answer them. Um, there's a question about whether TPS, Temporary Protected Status for Venezuelans in the United States, might happen. Let me answer that before I read the others, which is I, I think we're less optimistic about this right now. There was a moment last year where this seemed to be the State Department was pushing for this. There seemed to be some openness um, in, uh, in parts of the NSC were supportive um, against what was the domestic, the domestic immigration uh, decision makers in the administration. But I think in an election year, it's, it's less likely not impossible, but less likely. Um, second question, any evidence that Venezuelans are staying in Colombia as a result of the visa requirements, Jessica, in, uh, uh, that have been put up in Ecuador, Peru, and Chile, and also any evidence that anyone wants to come in on that trafficking has increased as a result of the entry requirements. Um, has, how much access do Venezuelan migrants have to uh, social programs like Bolsa Familia in Brazil? as well as equivalent programs in Brazil. Um, there is a specific question on changes in Ecuadorian policy. It was once the country that granted the most, what well, is the country in Latin America has granted uh, the most uh, uh, asylum applications historically in recent history, um, but what has changed over time? And finally, a specific question for Feline on the, with the citation for the 0.5 percent figure for Venezuelans as a percentage of those uh, uh, committing crimes. So, uh, Jessica, I'll go to you first. And we only have about one or two minutes okay. for each of you to answer. So we will uh, we'll try, and there may be, if you have other questions, we'll try and get back to you, but no guarantee at this point we'll be able to do that. But uh, we'll at least go back to all the panelists. So Jessica, you're first. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Um, and thanks for these questions. So on the question about whether uh, more people are staying in Colombia, uh, due to the visa requirements in other countries. Um, it's not necessarily clear that, that that's happening. Uh, what is more likely is that people are uh, being diverted to irregular channels and entering countries like Ecuador, Peru, and Chile that way. Um, we, don't we don't have consistent, uh, consistently reported data on the number of irregular entries, partly because these borders are so porous and because um, the any sort of border security forces are very sparse, um, but we've definitely seen uh, there's been some data out of Chile that the number of people uh, apprehended after crossing uh, through irregular channels has uh, went up into the thousands in 2019 compared to uh, in the mid hundreds in uh, 2018. Um, we know that when people are diverted to irregular channels uh, due to increased um, visa requirements, that that does empower criminal groups uh, who, uh, have, who have an incentive to take control of these, um, these irregular channels and uh, charge migrants or exploit migrants um, who are desperate to cross um, this seems to particularly be the case um, in, uh, well, it, this is, there, people are particularly vulnerable to this in the Colombia-Venezuela border where um, criminal groups have kind of been able to flourish on the Venezuela side, although that doesn't necessarily have to do with visa requirements. But yes, the, the short answer is that um, when people are diverted to irregular channels, um, they are more vulnerable to criminal groups. And one last thing I did want to mention um, just about Brazil, as Juliana kind of gave us a good rundown of the asylum system there, um, I did just want to highlight that Brazil 
um, in, since last June has granted asylum to about 40,000 Venezuelan migrants um, through their new uh, prima facie recognition of uh, Venezuelan migrants or Venezuelan status as refugees in that country. So just um, one, one particularly interesting piece of news out of Brazil that I wanted to highlight, and now I'll pass to the other panelists to take some of the other questions. That's great. Good. Feline. Yeah, just a quick follow-on on trafficking and whether this, this new policies or visa policies have been effective. According to Eduardo Stein, who is the special representative of the United Nations for the Venezuelan displacement crisis, 5,000 people continue to leave Venezuela every day. We know that they don't all stay in Colombia, so working here and, and talking to NGOs at the borders, they estimate, and even some police, uh, some, um, some state officials estimate that about two to 300 Venezuelans cross into Peru irregularly every day. What I saw in August when I was at the border last were all these illegal border crossings we never had. That's why I always say we want control or politicians want control, but by, by putting in place these impossible requirements for legal access, they really push people into irregularity. And some experts even talk about uh, an irregular population of, so we don't know, but some experts say up to 300,000 Venezuelans in Peru. The second question about the 0.5% of uh, police or, or complaints filed to the police against Venezuelans. That was the official data of the Peruvian National Police in May of, of this year. What we see now are all sorts of uh, ridiculous things. Um, we don't know and how far they will impact the data. But one thing that we've seen what, that we're seeing again and again is that Peruvian criminals are actually pretending to be Venezuelans for two reasons, because that way they can scare their victims more. And second of all, what some NGOs say is that they feel if complaints are made against Venezuelans at the police, basically um, it is even less likely than generally that anything will be done uh, in order to, to, to catch the, the perpetrators. Um, but the 0.5% the figure is the official statistic of the National Peruvian Police. Thank you, Feline. Um, and we'll go to Juliana. Let me ask Juliana, there's one more question here um, about Brazil, which is, um, did you say that it takes five uh, years to go through the asylum system in Brazil? Maybe you can address that. And let me add, there was another question that just came in about which country is it difficult to access education. That would be Trinidad and Tobago. It is the one country where it is hard to access the education system, almost impossible if you don't have permanent legal documentation. Uh, temporary documentation is not sufficient. Um, but other countries, it has been fairly, I, would, I wouldn't say easy. We, we actually find in the report, you can see a lot more detail on this, that there are in fact a lot of barriers to entry in schools, but they can be overcome over time, right? And these largely are not intentional. They're largely inertia, bureaucratic inertia rather than, and requirements rather than intentional on part of the government. Um, the, uh, and with that, there's a question about resettlement. Resettlement is being used in Trinidad and Tobago, actually. Um, for people who designate as refugees, it has not been as used elsewhere, but certainly there there could be a uh, use of resettlement. So, Juliana, um, anything you want to answer, including the asylum question? Oh, okay, um, uh, just just uh, uh, answering something very shortly about Bolsa Familia. Uh, Venezuela has the same rights as Brazilians to access this social benefits, so uh, they would have to to have all the requirements in the Bolsa Familia laws. 
to, to demand this kind of benefit. So it's basically uh, low income and other stuff that I don't remind by heart right now. But uh, so to increase something about the, the asylum, what is uh, uh, interesting and it's very, it's also linked to what Folini said, is that uh, uh, this, this Brazilian declaration, the recognition of uh, the serious and widespread violation of human rights in Venezuela, it's a very political decision. It's uh, a good thing in, in, other, in one hand because um, it can uh, uh, recognize prima facie and, 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 and solve uh, uh, determine the status of someone instead, instead leaving this, this person waiting up to five years until um, their asylum uh, application uh, being judged normally. Uh, but on the other hand, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a very political uh, question and issue. Uh, and, and you see, uh, it's, it's something for, for us to, to, to think about why uh, during the, the crisis, the, the Haitian crisis in 2013, uh, no, no, no uh, international organization were at the border to help Haitians. And right now, there are a lot of uh, international attention to the Venezuelans. Of course, the number is much larger than the number of Haitians, but uh, anyway, it's always a very uh, political decision. Thank you, Juliana. Um, this is, uh, someone asked a question about, uh, before we finish, whether Fellini had said 0.05% or 0.5%, uh, percent, uh, 0.5% of, so 0.5, half of 1% uh, was the figure on, on people who report crimes that are committed by a, a Venezuelan. Um, thank you everyone for joining us. I'm sure there are many more questions that we have not gotten to and I apologize for that, but we really appreciate you joining us and please look at the report, please look at the portal. On, which has lots and lots of information from many organizations and many researchers um, on, on policies, on migration policies and migration flows within Latin America and the Caribbean. There will be much more added to that portal over the coming months. There will be new countries added and new sources added to it. Um, and uh, we really appreciate you joining us. And on behalf of, of Jessica Bolter, Lisa Dixon, our event director, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thank you, Feline, and thank you, Juliana.